Hello and welcome to the 19th Science Communication Journal Club podcast episode. Today, we talk about poetry as a form of science communication. Better than Earth. Mechanical eyes sweep immeasurable skies, searching for life with boundaries predefined by the limitations of their homely existence. Blinkered hands reaching into dusky bags to pull blue marbles from a kaleidoscope of planetary possibilities. Not younger or smaller, but warmer and wetter, these are the states in which life would be better. Habitats that turn our planet green as it nervously shifts explorations to the watery blocks upon which we are stacked. At SciComm JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize, and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication contexts in a ways that scientists can easily implement. Hello to our listeners and welcome to my awesome SciComm co-host and a very special guest. We're recording on a Thanksgiving weekend, so happy Thanksgiving to everyone. And uh, thank you, Sherry and Sam, for being here. Uh, we, Sherry, we, we don't really need much of introduction. You know us, I'm Nevena, I'm the podca podcaster of the team, and Sherry is our founder. Hi. Uh, <laughs> Sam, however, is a guest today, and um, he was our co-host on our Twitter chat this past month, uh, Tuesday, sorry, not Monday. Uh, Sam, why don't you tell us, because you know yourself best, <laughs> who are you and why are you here today? Hi Nivina, hi Sherry. So my name is Sam Illingworth. I'm a senior lecturer in science communication at the University of Western Australia and my work and research involves developing dialogue between scientists and non-scientists and I tend to do that through two ways, through poetry and through games and in this podcast today I believe we're going to be focusing on poetry so how we can use poetry to start thinking about developing dialogue between scientists and non-scientists and just generally helping to diversify science in the process. That's pretty awesome, Sam. Thank you. And actually, uh, it's nice that you mentioned the games because originally I quote unquote met Sam uh, in relationship to gaming and science. Uh, he was a couple of weeks ago hosting a session uh, about gaming and, and uh, science uh, at the Association of the British Science Journalists Conference, which uh, the one thing that is a little bit good about the whole situation right now is a conference that I could visit well attend because it was online otherwise if it was in person I don't think I would have had the time <laughs> out of work to travel to it so anyway it was a great session and I just knew I had to have Sam on the on the podcast and as a guest on our team for a Twitter chat so we spoke a little bit and my idea was since we spoke about in episode 10 of our podcast uh, about gaming and education that we're just going to do a sequel to that and Sam would be a great addition uh, but then he suggested a paper that of, of his that I haven't read, actually, uh, that talked about both poetry and board games as an outreach medium. And I had no clue at the time that poetry as a science outreach effort is a thing. So I was like, yeah, we have to do that. And I'm very happy that we did. Um, but tell us a bit more about that paper, Sam, please. 
course. So this is a paper that was published in uh, Feb's letters, and basically it's a way of trying to talk to a, a larger audience about the ways in which we can communicate as scientists with non-scientists. And this idea that I think a lot of science communication is comes from a very good place, comes from a good heart, but sometimes it's a little too concerned with trying to communicate research or ideas that we find interesting to a quote unquote general public. And in the paper, I just talk about the fact that, you know, such a general public doesn't really exist based on the work of many others who've worked in this field. And actually instead people belong to various publics that they identify with um, and that when we're developing science communication strategies, we need to think about the publics rather than a general public. And that one of the ways in which we can start to develop two-way dialogue rather than a one-way diatribe is through a creative approach um, using poetry or games. And in terms of the poetry of the paper, really, it's talking about this idea that poetry, yes, is a really powerful way of, of developing this dialogue and of doing science communication more generally. And I myself and, and many others use poetry as a way to communicate science in, in a one-way sense. You know, for example, I have a blog where every week I read a poem and uh, I read a research paper and write a poem about it in a way to communicate that research to a new audience. But that's, you know, a very one-way method of me communicating something I find interesting to an audience. Whereas in the paper, I actually say the real power of poetry is the ability to start to turn that one-way communication into a two-way dialogue. And in particular, through writing poetry with scientists and non-scientists, it creates an environment in which people are able to discuss science by leveling hierarchies, by welcoming all voices and to do so in a language that is both inclusive and accessible and ultimately powerful in terms of developing action as well. So really that's what the paper's looking at. It's looking at ways in which we can use creative approaches to generate dialogue between scientists and non-scientists and to recognize that when we do such strategies, we need to move beyond assuming that there's one public. Uh, thank you, Sam. I think uh, reading your paper in preparation for the Twitter chat, um, I <laughs> I was highlighting things that I wanted to specifically mention in the chat and in the podcast. And then to be honest, like half of the paper was already uh, highlighted and like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is not going anywhere. So, because it, it, it's, it's so great. You're, um, mentioning so many of the points that we for well now this will be the 19th episode of the podcast and so many twitter chats before that we've been banging on all the time like the the, the fact that there's not one public the fact that you have to talk with people not talk to them and I have to say I was really really surprised about the description of those um kind of science poetry co-writing events have you I take it that you've been to such kind of um gatherings what it, what is it like yeah well a lot of my research is about facilitating such gatherings so it's bringing together um scientists and non-scientists for a particular topic um sometimes climate change sometimes mental health needs and 
in particular working with audiences who maybe are underserved or underheard by traditional science and science communication routes. And I think that, you know, these workshops are really powerful because as I, as I talk about in the paper, they grant permission to the non-scientists that what they say is valid. You know, you can't really attack someone's poem as being correct or incorrect. And they grant permission to the scientists to display an element of pathos that is so sadly missing in much of our research. You know, I think from an early age, we kind of have drummed into us that we need to be speak about the facts and in the cold hard facts. Mm -hmm. And yet when we're doing scientific research, I think it's imperative to be objective. But when we're communicating the research, you know, why aren't we displaying an element of passion? or emotion if stuff makes us angry or upset or scared then i think it's necessary that we communicate that and by doing so it helps to break down that veneer that exists on what a scientist looks like and sounds like and is and helps to instead re-establish and reconnect those links between science and society you know i think climate change as an example, scientists who research climate change are still affected by climate change. So it's really important that they get that across and writing poetry together in these co-creative workshops enables those kind of dialogues to take place. Has it been easy so far to find both scientists and no scientists, non-scientists to participate in that kind of events? That's a really good question. I think um, sometimes there's a little bit of stealth. So I've certainly advertised things as here, come and take part in a poetry writing workshop about climate change. And that turns some people on and gets some people there, which is great. But then a lot of the times it's going to be reaching the already engaged. So maybe instead what's where it's worked best is it's part of an event that's already ongoing. So then it's working with that community. So let's say there's a local community group who meet on a Thursday and maybe have a dinner and a talk or something like that. Then it's going along and just being like, oh, hey, and by the way, we're going to write some poetry now. And people then really end up enjoying it. And it means that we then reach those audiences that we wouldn't necessarily already reach. So the same with the scientists. I think working with people who are maybe not, particularly au fait with outreach, public engagement, science communication, etc., can be quite difficult. But I think creating an environment in which they feel safe and in which there is real value for them as well um, helps to build a trust and relationship that means that I normally have people who are willing to do these things, yeah. And did you discover many hidden poets among the scientists that you found out? Oh, there's always hidden poets. I mean, <laughs> scientists are so so talented in many ways. And, you know, one of the other things I do is I, I help to run a journal called Consilience, which is the world's first peer-reviewed science and poetry journal. And we created that as a space for people who are working in, in the liminal spaces between the sciences and the arts. Um, to come and share their work. And we also have a space on that called Conciliart, a, which looks at um, visual arts. And it's quite apparent that there's many scientists who are incredibly talented poets. And it's just about creating a space in which people feel that they can share and be supported in a supportive environment rather than um, something that they feel they're necessarily going to be 
um, I don't know, belittled or, or, or attacked on. So yeah, creating a space in which all voices are welcome is something that's really important to me. Talking about a space that everyone is, everyone's creativity is welcomed, uh, I really like a, a, a small idea that still needs to be explored and developed during the Twitter chat, uh, that we might do actually a science poetry reading at some point. I would, I would really love to, to see that happening. And I was really talking about the Twitter chat. I was really amazed. Um, thinking about it a few days after, I shouldn't have been so surprised that there are that many poets among the scientists. Because it, as you just said, there, scientists generally tend to be creative people. Uh, science itself being a creative endeavor <laughs> in a slightly different way than than art itself but i was really amazed how many uh poets were among the scientists and how many of them are on twitter and it was really really nice that many of them actually uh joined in and talk about supportive environment it was um a bit sad when <laughs> one of our followers actually mentioned that um She've always been kind of uh, criticized or warned that her scientific writing is is too flowery <laughs> or too poetic. Mm. Um, and to that, I can actually testify myself because I had those exact comments in my life before. And it's always a bit like, well, if it's still as clear and as concise as scientific language, why shouldn't it be pleasant to read as well? But what are some interesting things that you've read uh, in the Twitter chat? Yeah, I mean, I, just to speak to that as well, I couldn't agree more. I think I sometimes catch myself when I'm writing a scientific article going into like writing modes and I'm like, why am I doing this? Let's just make it readable and enjoyable. I think there were loads of points in the tweet chat that I could pull out. Um, one of them I think was really interesting was about writing in non-English and just a bigger point about poetry being accessible in general. Because I think one of the things that I rightly get picked up on a lot is why are you using a tool which is um, has a reputation of being exclusive and very white male dominated as a way of trying to diversify a topic that is <laughs> exclusive and very white male dominated. And it's a really good point. I think though, with a lot of the work that I do with poetry, um, it's about trying to work with those audiences um, to find poetry that is for them and by them. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of people have negative impressions of poetry because they've been introduced to a certain kind of poetry in high school. And I always make the analogy with music and I say, you know, I, I like lots of different types of music, but unfortunately I'm not the biggest fan of Swedish death metal. And if I'd only ever heard Swedish death metal as music, I would say I don't like music. And I think it's the same with poetry. I think people are exposed to a very particular type of poetry. So working with people to find poetry and poets that are representative of their communities and their voices and then creating their own is a really powerful way of addressing that. And imperative to that is making sure that we use poetry and we write poetry that is in the um, native language or the mother tongue of, of the participants. And that's amazing. I mean, you know, I, I don't really speak many other languages. So for me, it's fantastic because I love hearing sounds and poems. And then if we're able to get a translation, fantastic. But if not, 
it's still a really powerful way of doing things and, and helps to grant agency to those people. So writing poems in non-English is very, very important. And then another point just to pick up on is that, um, so one of the other tweeters picked up on this idea that science and poetry are complementary rather than mutually exclusive. And I think that's something that's really important. In my book, A Sonnet to Science, in which I look at the lives of six famous um, scientists and how they wrote poetry and what that poetry tells us about their research and lives, it became very clear that this was the case and that they're not two different competing ideas, but rather they're just different pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Neither of them have anywhere near the complete picture, but when we bring them together, they at least offer us hope that we're able to get a better sense of the world and the way in which we live. So yeah, they're, they're the two things I think that really came out that were very interesting. This idea of poetry um, itself being exclusionary, exclusive, and how we can move past that. And then also how we can co-join science and poetry together to be this, um, you know, complementary way of, of trying to understand the world. Mm. I'm really happy that the point about the um, poetry in other languages also popped up because both Sherry and I got quite excited about it actually both as uh, non-native English speakers and actually our previous episode about uh, communicating science in, in other languages than English actually um, so far is one of our most popular ones um, and language being so intimate and poetry potentially even more so <laughs> to me it actually makes even more sense for people to uh, enjoy reading poetry read, whether it's about science or not in in their native tongue however fluent they are in other languages i think it adds that extra level of of intimacy to the to the whole topic to what you're reading and if it's yours or if it's by someone else and i think actually sherry has a point to add to this Yeah, I just wanted to continue the discussion about being exclusionary and that wonderful chat that we had about language. And this ties to the uh, point that Sam made about many audiences, because we tend to think uh, about the public, quote unquote, as one homogeneous audience. And uh, <clears throat> we should stop thinking about that. We tend to generally in the science communication realm, um, we kind of package everybody into one of the public, but there are different types of people in the public and they have different needs and different interests. Um, so going back to the discussion about being exclusionary, I think if you flip that on its head, and think about including people that would normally not necessarily be excluded but wouldn't be interested that you can use poetry and art as a way of um, bringing, bringing them into the discussion so it's one thing let's say to host a seminar on um, new discoveries on cancer research but if you marry that with the poetry of someone who has experienced cancer either themselves or with their family, you can 
actually make them interested in the topic and get them to listen. Mm. Because poetry a lot of times um, comes from a space of pain and expressing uh, what the painful experiences that um, you've had in your life. So one of the things that comes to my mind is rap. Rap is one way for the African-American community to start experience, uh, expressing their pain in the beginning. And I didn't quite realize that until my, uh, my people in my own, <clears throat> excuse me, in my own country after the Islamic revolution, um, they are really expressing a lot of pain. And young people have started writing rap songs. And when I listened to those rap songs coming from young people in Iran expressing their pain, all of a sudden something clicked for me. And I thought, wow, this was the point of rap in the African-American community. Because if you listen to it, uh, especially the ones that were created earlier, it is all about their community and the way they're being mistreated and lack of opportunities. So if you can get somebody to write a poem about their experience facing a challenge that they had, something that science can solve, that's a great way to bring people together that, um, to talk to people who normally wouldn't pay attention. So I would challenge anybody to think about it as an exclusionary way rather than including people that otherwise wouldn't be included. And another thing, uh, tell me if I'm talking too much. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing is that poetry is very culture-based. Mm -hmm. So I can appreciate English poetry because I've lived in North America for so long, but other people with other languages um, probably won't appreciate English poetry as much as people who are familiar with it. Uh, because it's so tied to culture, the, the, you, the um, examples or metaphors and things that we use in poetry, you wouldn't really understand it unless you understand the culture. Mm. And this ties back to the discussion of the fact that we tend to communicate science primarily in English. Uh, the discussion that we had in our, in our previous podcast, which was so popular. Um, so one way to do that, poetry and, I don't know, things like that can help scientists express, communicate their science in their own culture in a way that touches people's hearts because it's so connected to the culture. And, and another different, well, slightly different point um, that kind of came through the Twitter chat as well um and now that you mentioned that both sherry and sam um that poetry is not necessarily introduced in the most attractive way to younger um people to students mm -hmm. um and it's more or less introduced at the same time that science is <laughs> and i do see also similarities in this that maybe in our educational programs we don't do justice to neither science nor poetry yeah, exactly. <laughs> in many cases and I think Sherry you had an experience with that as well as, as having a, a teenage uh, daughter 
Well, actually, yeah, both both my kids because when um, we unfortunately because of cutting so so much cutting and funding in education, a lot of art programs and music programs and things have been cut. But uh, the school that my kids go to, it's a combination of art and science, so kids can experience both of them. And when my kids took their uh, English courses and they were basically forced because of the requirements of the course write poetry my kids blew my mind about the poetry they can write mm-hmm. I was just so um so amazed and I could see some of the things for example in case of my daughter probably she um wouldn't tell us something but it it came through her poetry mm. the the way she sees us she sees her life um, it was just absolutely fantastic. And then uh, both of them, both of my kids actually took a, an art class where they had to work with their hands. Um, and just that gave them another way to express themselves. And for example, my son loves airplanes. And that's such a, you could say that's a very, that comes from his engineering mind. He just makes, he used to draw perfect illustrations of airplanes and that goes with science and physics but then for his art project he actually created an airplane using the material that his that he was given and it turned out so beautiful and he enjoyed so much creating that piece of art that it's just it was amazing it's amazing to watch it's very (laughs) liberating indeed to to use art as a form of expression no wonder that (laughs) for so many thousands of years humanity has been doing that and uh, talk about growing up into art sam were you first a scientist or were you first a poet that's a really good question i guess both um i guess when i was um a younger man like i was really into like music and like being like a in a band and stuff and always wrote poetry um, and then when I did my PhD, that was in atmospheric physics, and it was very much about making measurements of greenhouse gases um, using satellites and aircraft and drones. And I really loved doing that. But I kind of realized that as well as those measurements, which people did much better than me, it, it was necessary to also think about why are we having these measurements and how do we work with communities that may be neglected and especially around climate change and, and whose voices weren't being heard and that's when i started doing science communication as, as, a, as a research discipline and then i was very fortunate to be able to combine i guess my love of, of poetry um, and science into the role that i have now so yeah i mean i don't know if i i still struggle calling myself a poet um I, I think but that's just imposter syndrome, right? Um, mm-hmm, I think probably. that, um, but I think the BBC called me a poet once. So if the BBC called me a poet, that's okay. Then you're a poet. <laughs> right? Uh, so, so yeah, I think both uh, is the honest answer. And I think that's part of the reason I do a lot of the work I do, because I don't like, I don't like the idea that people are pigeonholed and put into boxes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'd much rather that we're seen as human beings with infinite potential. Um, and we don't have to be seen as a poet or an artist or a scientist or a sculptor, but like I say, just human beings. And we had participants, I think you already mentioned that, that expressed concern about their superiors objecting to their writing methods. And like you said, it's, it's what was it? What was the expression they used? 
too flowery and too poetic. too flowery yeah so i think i mean in a way um i can understand the desire from a point of view of uh, the scientific community to be concise and don't write extra stuff uh because scientists are bombarded with so many different things that they have to do that they just want to pick up the paper and read it just just give it the points uh and i can understand where that's coming from uh but it's also at the same time we have to stop um denying on our own humanity and allow ourselves to to express our humanity so maybe allow scientists who want to write poetry to give the you know bare bones information that a scientist needs to get out of the paper but also give them space maybe to write a poem or people are starting talking about writing a simplified version of the paper as an abstract so other people can read it so we have to um we have to reach out to our own humanity and bring it and combine it with doing science which is probably the greatest tool to help us connect yeah and to to that i actually w was thinking um you know how in some journals you can also submit a graphical abstract to your to your publication i would yeah. absolutely love it if more journals started accepting artistic representation or, or some artistic side to your publication that goes published with it whether it's a poem a painting a graphical representation or anything at all that expresses also the creativity of the person or the team that came into that or whoever feels comfortable with sharing it it would be so much more fun for both scientists and non-scientists mm. to discover that work no, absolutely mm. and I, i did a study actually where i looked at I gave 50 scientists my a poem about a paper that I'd written and 50 scientists the original abstract and then conducted a thematic analysis and they they took the same information from the poem and the abstract which was quite interesting. Um so I, I, yeah I think that would be a wonderful way of enabling people just to be inspired by the the science that's there as well. I had a que another question yet another question for you so um in the events that you've been organizing so far for co-creation co around science and poetry are those um have those been mostly for adults or did you have also younger people involved yeah i mean i've done work with i don't i've done a lot of work with with younger people as well i i guess for each of them it depends very much on the context um and the work that we're doing um we did an event uh, well one of the many events we did was where we took ch children into a um planetarium and got them to write about the stars as poetry and about the mm -hmm. stars as science and then to compare and contrast and there's another exercise we do where we work with school children to do experiments and instead of writing up the experiment as a lab report we write it up as a poem Yeah. And that's like a really nice way of just getting them to explore language and, and, and like I say, different ways of, of understanding as well. I have to say, one of my favorite things about what you've mentioned in your article and that I didn't necessarily as well think about before is, again, poetry being so personal. Um, as you made this nice uh, analogy with music, uh, there's so many different types of poetry out there. So you don't, uh, well, a person doesn't have to like all of them. 
mm. and at the same time uh, what you mentioned in your paper is that even if you write a bad poem you still can have a conversation about the topic and you can still feel related or closer or uh, be inspired by the person who wrote it as and I, I say bad in quotation marks <laughs> because it's it's just so nice that whatever you write as a poem it's as valid as anything else anyone else writes as poem so it, it it's a way for someone also it's kind of an <laughs> It would sound very strong, but it's kind of an entry drug <laughs> to to being more free to express yourself with art. And I just love that when I read it. In, in oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that's a really important part of the work that it's, you know, it's a very much constructivist rather than constructionist mindset in that it, the aesthetic quality of what's produced doesn't matter. It's mm. just the process of creating um and providing a space and support for people to do that that's much much more important um and yeah so yeah i think i'm, I'm glad that you like that bit of the paper <laughs> so what is your take-home message and maybe a call to action for our listeners i think the take-home message really from the paper is for people who are doing science communication to think about when they're doing their science communication, move away from this general one-size-fits-none um, <laughs> approach mm. to communicating. Think about which audience or audiences or public or publics you want to engage with. And then think about how you can maybe use creativity, such as poetry, to help to really establish dialogue. And in doing so, move away from this idea that scientists are the people who have the research skills and poets are the people who have the creativity and actually everybody has different elements of this and my call to action would be for people who are interested in the liminal spaces between science and poetry and who want to write some poetry just to come and join uh, us on, on consilience we publish about four um, issues a year uh, you're very welcome people to come and join our review and editing team as well we have 40 volunteers from six of the seven continents just antarctica missing now and um yeah so just would really welcome people to come and join us there and i'm always always looking for opportunities to collaborate with people so if anything that we've said resonates if people want to get in touch with me please do so because i'd love to continue the conversation and think up cool ways of using poetry to help um diversify science Thank can you i ask that. sam a question yes of course Okay, so people listening to these, our listeners, I'm sure some, many of them are wondering, what was your journey like going from an atmospheric physics to be a to do work in psychology? Okay, so I, after my PhD, I was, so during my PhD, I was also the theatre president of my university. Um, and I was really, I was convinced I was going to be a thespian. And I was really interested in the relationship between science and theatre. And I was really lucky to get a scholarship to go and live and work in Japan for two years with the Daiwa Anglo-Japanese Foundation, where I studied the relationship between science and theatre under the huh. director, Yukio Ninigawa. And then that enabled me to start doing some work around science communication. I came back to the UK. I got a postdoc um, working on aircraft again uh, for a very short period of time and then got tenure 
very, very luckily um, at Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK, where I started looking at science communication. And then when I was there, I was like, oh, poetry would be a fun thing to explore. And then it all came from there. So it's, it's been very fortuitous. Um, and yeah, I'm just very grateful that I'm able to combine the things that I love in life, which are science and poetry and, and, and games as well. That's amazing. Yeah, I think we'll need to have you another time to talk more about games because that, <laughs> especially with Maria and, and Heather, I know that that's uh, quite a um, quite a hobby for <laughs> for for our team. Is that digital games or? Uh, well, I, I'm I am a huge digital gamer, but I'm really interested in analog games. My colleague Paul Wake and I do a lot of games design and games research in analog space, just because analog games versus digital games um, they offer tactility they offer an ability to modify with a pen and paper rather than necessarily being able to code in complex languages mm -hmm. and they create um, a social interaction and a safe space around a gaming table through which difficult and necessary dialogue can take place so I'm very happy to come and talk about why analog games are so important at another future time for sure well, did. maybe we can talk about the other half of this same paper that talks about games. <laughs> of course. And you, you did do also an educational game, Sam, didn't you? Um, oh, do we call it an educational game? Like for me, Navina, educational game is a dirty word. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, 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 so we designed, we've designed several games, Paul and I, but I guess our latest game is Carbon City Zero, which is a game that um, people well, people actually collaborate to create a city that's the world's first zero carbon. I would say it's not an edgy game, but that's only because I think edgy games tend to be designed by people who don't actually know what games are. Um, so that's me being very rude and very unfair. I, I, I think I would call it a game because I guess part of our research and the thing that we're most interested in with games is that in order for a game to be used in an educational setting and for a game to be successful as a piece of science communication, dialogue development it needs to be a game that people want to play of their own volition and to be fun first mm. and an educational tool second and a lot of the time when people design edgy games or educational games they do it the other way around which is why people never choose to play those games again so yeah for me it's all about making games that people want to play and which create dialogue opportunities rather than creating an educational tool Okay, I think it's settled. You're coming back for another, for another Twitter chat and another podcast. So going back to the point that Sam made about people thinking you can only be poet or a scientist, and I think um, the there is there are things in general society that uh, misconceptions that are rampant, and I think part of um, helping SciComm is trying to keep talking about those misconceptions and trying to debunk them to help people um, make the take, how do, how do I say, take the leap. And one of them is that concept of left brain, right brain. And if you just um, go into self-help psychology books or listen to radio shows talking about these things, the idea that uh, we have left brains and right brain and they're different uh, is just, this is something we need to talk about and debunk. Um, so that's another thing that I wanted to say. That's a very good point. Well, 
my uh, call to action for our listeners would be to go to Sam's blog and read and listen to his poems because they're very very nice to listen to even if you're even if English is not your first language where can people do that Sam and while they're waiting for us to have you for for another episode talking about games where they can get in touch and and find your oh, thank work. you that's very kind so um my blog is just called the poetry of science and you can just google that and find that and i also have a podcast called the poetry of science which is found on all podcast directories of choice so please do have a listen to it and let me know what you think you can find me on twitter at sam illingworth and yeah it would also be wonderful for people to come and hang out with us on consilience as well and thank you very much for this opportunity it's, it's been great speaking to you both well, yeah, thank you thank, so thank much you. For, for joining us and for being so open to, to talk about it. Unfortunately, this is all the time we had for today. Um, thank you very much, both Sam and Sherry, for spending your Thanksgiving weekend or part of it with me on our podcast. I'm sure our listeners would really enjoy this. Um, Sherry, what should listeners expect from our team next? Yeah, for December, we'll probably won't have a chat, but we're planning for an awesome new creative way. Um, a, we, as you know, every January we have a state your mission challenge to encourage scientists to put a plan into place for uh, sci science communication. This year, we're kind of thinking about doing something creative um, and you'll hear about it in January. So stay tuned. And in the meantime, time enjoy the holidays. Exactly. I think yeah, everyone deserves a break. Off. Yes. <laughs> well, thanks again, and uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter at psychom underscore jc to participate in future discussions, but also in the past ones. You can always find the moments on our profile from our previous Twitter chat, so you're almost always not almost you're always most welcome to contribute and jump into a discussion that has taken place before uh, you can also go to our website which is www.psychomjc.org you can read their interesting articles related to science communication you can meet us as well uh, you can listen to uh, previous uh, podcast episodes and basically get in touch and you can subscribe to our newsletter and receive updates about upcoming events future twitter chats podcast releases summaries of interesting topics that our team sometimes does that don't necessarily go into a chat or a podcast and again to do that go to www.psychomjc.org if you're interested in doing an internship with our team, if you have the bandwidth for this, <laughs> get in touch again via our website and I'm sure we can figure out something together. Uh, this podcast has been recorded by the SciComm JC team. It has been produced and edited by me, Nevena, and our music is composed by Musical Cocktail from Audio Jungle. Thank you very much for joining this 19th episode of the SciComm JC podcast. If you've liked it, let us know, please share it with your friends. Until next time, stay nerdy.